Welcome to the 40 Fit and Fabulous podcast. Join your host, Mark Slight, as he gets the best information, inspiration, help, and advice from the world's best athletes, performance coaches, and health experts so that you can look, move, and feel your best at 40 and beyond. Remember, it's never too late to live the life of your dreams. Now here's your host, Mark Slight. Hello and welcome back to the 40 Fit and Fabulous podcast and your very first episode of 2020. It feels really strange saying 2020. I mean, the fact that we're actually in that year is is quite shocking, I think. Um, time has flown by, particularly as you get a little bit older, time seems to just whiz by. But here we are in 2020 and actually nothing ever really changes, does it? This time of year, I'm not going to bang on about New Year's traditions and resolutions and things like that, but things rarely change. Most of us sit here this time of year reflecting on the previous year and put our plans in place for the coming year. But, you know, by the end of January, the kind of momentum goes a little bit and we lose our focus and we and we don't stick to our goals past January usually uh, for the most part. So nothing really changes year after year. And we've talked over the last couple of weeks about some New Year's resolutions and and the way that I set my goals. So I'm not going to go on about that again today. What I am going to do, though, is particularly for the new people to the podcast, because a lot of people over the second half of this year who have started listening to the 40 Fit and Fabulous podcast for the first time, what I want to do is go back to the most popular episode of 2019. This is not something I've done before going back on a previous episode, but it was such a landmark episode, particularly for me. If you haven't listened already, this this one episode has over five times more listens and downloads than any other episode on the podcast. And it was an incredibly difficult one for me to share. In this episode, I talk about my father's illness and the night that we nearly lost my father. It's a very open, very honest episode. It's, n- it's not edited at all. It's just me talking. You can hear some some sniffles in the background. There's a few tears as we go through the through the podcast, but I needed to keep them in there because I really wanted to share the story. I really wanted you to understand the the gravity of it and how serious it was and, and how much it's affected me and my father and, and all my family ever since that day. So what I'm going to do now without any further ado is jump back in to the middle of 2019, to the start of season two, and to the most popular episode of the 40 Fit and Fabulous podcast. If you have listened to it already, it's probably worth listening to again. You know, it's a good eye-opener and it just reminds us of all how valuable our health is and how easy it can be taken away. And if you've not listened to it yet, it's definitely, definitely worth a listen. It's a very shocking episode, but everything's 100% true. Everything's 100%, 100% honest and it will change your viewpoint on life whether it be your health, whether it be your family's health, but it will change your viewpoint definitely and it will get you to understand just how serious things can be if we do not look after ourselves now. So sit back, grab a cup of tea, grab a few tissues and let me take you back into the middle of 2019. So I'm aware it's the middle of the night. Something's woken me up. I'm just assuming at this drowsy state that it's my, my aging bladder um but then then you can hear this this very very loud ringing noise and 
It takes me a few few seconds to kind of wake up to it, but I realise that the phone, the landline in our room, is ringing, and it's it's deafening. It's really really loud. So quickly, I try and get out of bed and try and answer the phone before it before it wakes everybody else up. Um, Oscar's on the floor. He's woken up. He's stirring because of the noise. I've looked at my phone. It's like two thirty. This isn't good. This this is not a good phone call. Bearing in mind the last time I was on the phone was 9.30 that evening and I was actually talking to my dad and he was out of breath and he was out of breath to the to the extent it sounded like he was struggling to walk upstairs or it sounded like actually he just walked up the stairs or he just jogged up the stairs and he was a little bit out of breath. But I was on the phone to him for about 15 minutes and his breath never recovered. He constantly sounded like he'd just run up the stairs. Now... In my head, when I was on the phone, I knew I should have told him to, to go to the doctors or I should have should have made him pursue that more. We did talk about that and he did say, yeah, I'll, as he always does, dismisses it. Yeah, yeah, I'll go to the doctors maybe tomorrow if it's still bad or maybe later in the week I'll go. I should have been more forceful and I should have made him go. So here we are, 2.30 in the morning. I pick up the phone. It's my mum on the other end of the phone. My mum is in tears. She's in pieces. My dad has, has been taken to hospital. Um... The ambulance has come, has taken him to the hospital. So I'm, I'm kind of, from what I remember, I'm kind of getting changed as I'm talking to my mum. I'm, I'm aware that I need to go pretty quickly. You can just tell that it's it's bad and you need you need to be moving quickly. I'm trying to wake my girlfriend up at the time as well and trying to try to get her to listen to what I'm saying so she gets the gravity of how, how desperate this is and how much we have to go out the house now. Um, and then my mum says something on the phone that, that you, you never really want to hear. She said that, the two paramedics have taken my dad to the hospital. They've advised my mum to, f- to follow up, um, but they've also advised her to be very quick. So you realise then just uh, just how bad it is. And you might even be able to tell from my voice, just talking about it now and thinking back to that situation, <clears throat> excuse me, gets, gets me very upset and makes me very emotional. And that's probably going to happen quite a bit in the next 10 minutes as I recount this story. So we throw some clothes on. Um, give Oscar a pat on the head as I go out the door and um, and off we go to my mum's, which is about 10 minutes away. Now, by the time I get to my mum's, she's she's calmed down a little bit. She's sitting at the dining room table. She's she's waiting. She's fully dressed. And um, and we we pick her up and we, we go to the hospital. The, the conversation in the car, which is about another 15 minutes from my mum's house to the hospital, is, is quiet. In my head, I'm thinking that we're going to get there and I'm never going to see my dad again. Or I'm certainly never going to get to speak to him again. So when we arrive, we um, we park up. We have a, a very short walk into the into the A and E of the hospital. Um, and we're we're made to wait. It's obviously like three o'clock in the morning now. We're trying to trying to be patient, waiting waiting. Well, there wasn't really a line from what I remember, but we're waiting for the receptionist to sort of notice us. And she we we tell her who we are, and and she directs us into the it's not the ICU, which is the intensive care unit. This is this is a ward that is for emergencies and is um, how can how can I put this? It's for dire emergencies, people who have come in and need urgent medical care instantly, and they they go into this this tiny ward, and I call it a ward. It's not a ward like you might know a hospital ward to be. It's a um, it's basically a, a little long room with about seven beds in it. It's out the way. No one can see it. No one can. You can't walk past this ward like you can other wards in the hospital. It's, it's tucked out the way. So we walk in, and um, 
there's a, there's a lot of activity. There's there's about seven beds, all with blue curtains um, around them. Only one of these curtains is drawn, all the rest are open. And there's a, there's a person in front of us laying on a bed with an oxygen mask on, who looked exactly like my dad. He had the same hair, and um, he's laying on the bed, same sort of physical size. And underneath the oxygen mask, as he's laying on his side, and underneath the oxygen mask, as this man's laying on his side, is a pool of blood, dried blood. And it kind of hits me then that my dad is really ill. This, to me, this is my dad. And I don't know any different. No one's, no one's directed us. No one's told us anything. Kind of been sent into this, into this little ward. And, um, and a nurse, a female nurse comes past. She says, well, please stay there. We'll be with you in a moment. We've just, we're dealing with a, an incident at the moment. And we'll be with you as soon as we can. And, and at the far end, in, in like bed number one on, on our left, um, the curtains are drawn. And that there is about two doctors, four or five nurses. And they're all rushing around. So, okay, so we're waiting patiently. I'm looking at what I think is my dad in front of me. And I'm worried, you know, he's, he's laying there, he's he, he's asleep and um, he's got an oxygen mask on and he's, his head's sort of in blood, really, covered in blood. And I'm very worried about him. And all I can do is, is look around as I'm waiting and there's a cupboard uh, to the side of me as I've walked in the door. And it's a cupboard that possessions are put in of people who have died in this ward. So instantly you're aware of how serious this ward is and... You probably, without knowing the stats, you're aware that quite a lot of people who come into this ward don't actually come out again alive. So it's a, it's a big concern. So then, then this nurse comes back and she, she takes me, my mum and my girlfriend into what I would call a waiting room um, or what they might call a waiting room. It actually turns out to be a little bit of a broom cupboard. Uh, there, there's room for the three of us in there and basically a pot plant and, and that's about it and with, with the three of us in the pot plant in the room you you can barely shut the door it's really really tiny it's it's 3 3 30 in the morning it's dark you're you're terrified of what's happening and you're left there to wait and you don't know what's happening and then a short while later but it seemed about 15 minutes or so uh, a male nurse comes into this room and and he comes in he, he just stands in the doorway um an asian male nurse and he, he, he says to us, okay, the incident they were dealing with was my dad. The person I, I saw on the bed wasn't my dad at all. The person that they was all panicking about and rushing around to help was my dad in the far bed with the curtains drawn. And he asked me this this horrible question. He said, uh, are you happy with your with your father to be resuscitated? And I, I said, yes, do, do whatever you absolutely, whatever you need to do to keep him alive, please, please do it. Um, it later become clear that they'd already resuscitated him once at this point. Um, and shortly after this nurse left the room, they, they had to resuscitate him again um, within minutes of each other. <clears throat> so he came in, he was, he was, he was quite relaxed. He, he kind of, even though it was a very serious situation, he kind of put us at ease a little bit. And um, you were aware it's very serious, but you're also at this point fairly, well, as relaxed as you can be, I suppose. So they, we then wait again, what seems like about 30 minutes. I had no watch on, I didn't know, but it seemed about 30 minutes. And then a doctor comes in. You can tell the difference between the nurses and the doctors straight away. He's a different persona about him, different clothes. And he comes into the room and he pulls up a chair and he shuts the door. As body language goes, this this was, up until this point, the worst moment of my life. I In my head, I was convinced we was about to be told that my my dad had passed away. They couldn't do anything for him. Absolutely convinced that this is what we was about to be told. I'm looking at I'm looking at my mum and thinking, how how do I do how do I deal with this? Like I'm, I've I've got to be strong here. I can't 
I can't break down at this point. And this doctor, he sits there and he he, he opens his mouth and uh, and some words start to come out and he, he starts to say that my dad is seriously ill. They've resuscitated him twice. He's had two heart attacks at this point and he's stopped breathing uh, for 30 seconds twice. So for a minute overall while they was while they was resuscitating him. He is, and I remember these words quite clearly, he is as close to death as any human can be without and still being alive, basically. Um, and that was terrifying. But he was still with us. He was he was very weak. Um, he was being kept alive by the medical staff around him. Um, and they, though at this point, they was trying to keep him off a ventilating machine. They was trying to keep my dad's body working on its own without the assistance of a ventilating machine which pleased me massively because about six months prior to this my girlfriend had lost her stepdad very very quickly he'd gone into hospital on I think the the, the Friday he'd been placed on a ventilating machine on Saturday and then within 24 hours they had to switch the ventilating machine off and I remember someone telling me then that very few people who go onto the ventilating machine actually come out of it on the good side so when he said they was trying to keep him off the ventilating machine, I was very happy um, because of what happened to my girlfriend's stepdad. Obviously, I didn't tell my mum this. She knew nothing about this, so I kept that to myself. But I was I was very concerned at this point. But also massively, massively grateful that my dad was actually still alive because I was convinced I was about to be told that he was dead. So they, they say they're going to clean my dad up. Um, they're going to monitor him for a little bit. They've, they've still got some work to do. He's, he's still he's not looking not looking his best, I think he said. Um, so they're going to clean him up, clean all the all the blood up and everything else, and clean the machine away and and make him look a bit tidier. Then they're going to move him up to ICU. Um, and in a short while, me, my mum, my girlfriend would be able to see him before they move him up to ICU. So that was good news. Um, whilst well, whilst they was cleaning him up and before we could actually go and see him, they did come in and they they explained to us that that my dad <clears throat> was too weak to support his own body. And he was too weak to breathe on his own. And that he had, in fact, been placed on the ventilating machine. And that was the only thing that was keeping him alive at this point. His his breathing capacity was down to about 10%. Because of all the stress and the trauma, his um, his lungs had, had effectively seized. And they couldn't, they couldn't um, expand and contract on their own, which is why he was on the ventilating machine. Um, and he was going to have to stay on that until until some kind of um, pliability had returned to his lungs and they, they could actually function on their own and, and they was confident enough that they could take him off the machine and he could breathe on his own. This could take three days, four days, up to a week. Um, but I am now convinced in the, in the back of my head that um, my dad has less than 24 hours to live because of what's happened to my girlfriend's stepdad six months before. Obviously, again, I can't tell my mum this, but um, this is in my head that um, it's in my head that you can never speak to your dad again. <clears throat> As you stand over the bed and and you see all the machinery connected to your dad, and you realise that there's so many things you wanted to say, so many things that you wanted to do, and for me, it wasn't. I'm sorry. And for me, it wasn't so much hearing my dad's voice again. It was the fact that he couldn't hear what I wanted to tell him and things that I wanted to say. 
the, the simplest thing like just putting your hand on his and just telling him you love him was was never going to happen again so so we stand there for a little while and we don't really say a lot to be honest between us we just look and make a little bit of small talk and, and we basically um waiting now for for people to come and, and move my dad to to icu uh it seemed like quite a while it did seem like we was there for probably 20 30 minutes you, you kind of want them to come and take him to icu so he can be looked after but there's there's also a part of you that thinks you that this is the last time you're actually gonna be in the same room as him while he's alive even though there's not uh, at this stage, there's not. Uh, well, I use the word alive very loosely. There's not. He's not up and dancing or anything. But you do just feel that this is the most you're ever going to get out of him again, and it's heartbreaking. But after a little while, um, people do come and they they take him away and they they move him up to the ICU, and the three of us we we kind of head home, and then we take my mum home. Make sure that she's all right. She uh, she makes a coffee, she, shaky hands. I think more more coffee and sugar goes on the side than it does in the cup. Bless her. I offered to stay. Um, she didn't want to. She wanted us to go back to Oscar and and to get some sleep. So we did. This is this is probably now ten a.m. when we get back. Um, actually, I went back up to to bed. I, I think I came home and walked Oscar for a little bit. And then, uh, then I went to bed, and and I got some sleep, not not much, but a couple of hours. And we'd arranged to go and see my mum again about two o'clock, two three o'clock in the afternoon. And from there, we was going to go back up to up to the hospital. So, yep, two o'clock comes around, we go and pick my mum up. She's she's much better. She's sitting at the dining room table. She's she's having a coffee. She's she's much much better. Um, and she's. Um, yeah, she she doesn't seem as upset. She seems more focused, and and she seems ready to go to the hospital. All is good. So I think I come round. I had a coffee with her as well. Spent a little bit of time just talking. Um, I don't remember what we talked about. Um, I tried to keep things as positive as possible, and as hard as it was. And at this point, I haven't shown any emotion whatsoever um, in front of my mum, or or indeed when I went home and and slept. It didn't it didn't come out of me at all. <laughs> But we go to um we're we're getting ready at this point and we're just putting our shoes back on and we're getting literally getting ready to walk out the door. You know, we're just turning the lights off and we're just going out of the house and the telephone rings. And I don't know what it was inside me. I knew I absolutely knew this was the hospital. Um and I kinda got the feeling here as well that as positive as as I was being, that this next journey to the hospital was gonna be pointless uh so i answered the phone because i i thought i knew what was coming and i didn't want my mum to deal with that and and selfishly i also didn't want to hear it through my mum's phone call on the phone i kind of wanted to hear it myself so i picked up the phone and, and this young nurse um answers and says who she is she was she was um she was emma from the icu and she was the nurse looking after my dad but I could tell straight away that if she was about to deliver bad news, she was, she had quite a happy tone of voice. And if she was about to tell me really bad news, she, um, 
She didn't have the grave, dark, depressive voice I was expecting. And and she said to me that um, they've they've switched my dad's machine off and they've woke him up and he's he's up now and he's he's having a drink and he's absolutely fine and and we and I just couldn't believe it. I just I remember just just asking her again and again, like, are, are you sure? You know, are you sure you got the right person because he was on death stories. He was he was as ill as any person could be and still be alive. You know, he was. He had 10% lung capacity. How could he possibly be off this machine? He was showing no signs of improvement whatsoever. And she just said that she monitored him for the last five, six hours. And, and she just, she thought he was ready to come off. So she switched the machine off and he just started to breathe on his own. And and we couldn't believe it. So we f- <laughs> we flew to ICU in probably the happiest mood we've, we've ever been. Um, and we get there and... And my dad's sure enough, he's up and he's he's okay and he looks he looks like my dad again and and it was um it was an amazing, amazing feeling. It really was. Um he had memory loss. He he kept asking us repeatedly how long has he been in, how long has he been in. Um he he couldn't go more than twenty seconds without asking the same question again. He he had very, very bad memory loss. But to be fair, his memory wasn't that great before he went into hospital. Um and then he spent three weeks, he got transferred from ICU after a couple of days and he got transferred up to to one ward and then onto another. And he was in hospital for three weeks having various tests and and bits and pieces. And, and we, we found out the extent of the problems. He'd had two two heart attacks back to back and that was it. And then three weeks later, he came out of hospital and, and he's had another two and a half years of, of sort of constant tests. He's on He's on about 11 different pills every day to manage all these different conditions that he's got. And this is now his life. Um, every every week in hospital or, or, the, or the GP surgery, two to three times at least. Different medication all the time. He'll never come off his medication. He's, he's on that for the rest of his life now. And then following on from this, it's led to to myself having some heart scans because he's um, he's passed on some, some heart conditions as well. Um, but the bulk of his conditions have been caused by his own diet and lifestyle over the previous 50 years. So there is definitely a lesson to be learned in looking after yourself and i hear it a lot of time i haven't got time for this i haven't got time for that the sad truth is if you haven't got time to prep your food if you haven't got time to move a little bit more and get a bit of exercise and take care of yourself now you need to make time to be ill later in life and when i say ill i'm talking seriously ill this is the hardest thing i've ever done recorded this podcast episode i've had to pause this so many times because i, I just find it so hard to talk about trying to relay to you the listener what the feelings were like what it was what the situation is like the hospital waiting room doctors coming to tell you that your, your loved ones have passed away I'm trying to convey it as real as possible and for me to kind of go back to that time and remember them situations I, I have cried so many times during recording this podcast I've paused it so many times you need to understand that if you're over 40 and you're not looking after yourself there is a very, very good chance that this is going to be your life. And there's a massive part of me that thinks I'm not even concerned as much about you yourself. If you want to hurt yourself and you want to cause this amount of pain to yourself and you want to be ill, that's that's up to you really. But think about the people around you. The effects this had on me and my mum are horrendous. And we we get this now for the rest of our life as well. We, we have to take my dad to hospital. We have to put up with, with the with the slippery slope he's on because he's never going to get much better. He's, he's, he's always going to be struggling for breath. He's, he's always going to have heart conditions now and he's always going to be ill. And it's the people around you that have to pick up the pieces. And 
just that one night alone in the hospital and having the paramedics come to your house and being told that your loved ones are being resuscitated as you sit 20 feet away is is just heart-wrenching and I cannot if you've never been through it I cannot explain how tough it really is um maybe it's come across I've, I've left some of my emotion in this podcast and maybe that's come across in the podcast but you, you need to understand that there isn't always going to be another Monday my dad for one was oh, I'll start Monday I'll start Monday I'll start a new diet in the new year and there comes a point where it's just it's too late you can't keep having Mondays and Mondays and Mondays you're on borrowed time we get one life we need to make the most of it if you're too busy to cook and too busy to exercise like I said you're gonna to have to make time to be ill you really really are you need to focus nowadays on on your health every single day um, to stop this happening because once it starts to happen once you start to deteriorate once you get on the slippery slope it is too late 